Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. For our scripture reading this morning, we're going to look at multiple passages. First, we're going to look at Ephesians 4. Verses 20, verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Psalms 15, verses 1 and 2. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Proverbs 12, verse 19. The truthful lip shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. John 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Ephesians 4, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. You may be seated. If you would like an outline of today's sermon, open up in your Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to do these two chapters, 21 and 22. 1 Samuel chapter, chapters 21 and 22. So glad to see you here today. What are the attributes of God? We're here to worship God this morning and to extol His virtues and greatness. Is His love for truth, His adherence to truth. I'm very thankful for that. God doesn't answer to anybody. Hebrews chapter 6 says that he can swear by no greater than himself. He's eternal. I'm just so thankful that God is who he is. And the book of Titus in the second verse of the book says that God, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is there anything God can't do? It's a trick question. Anything God can't do? That's right. Good. God cannot lie. And that's what Titus 1 and verse 2 says, and it's in the context of you and me going to heaven, which just, I just rejoice over that, don't you? We're going to go to heaven in Christ, and God cannot lie. Now, here's what happened about this sermon. I wrote this sermon. I was, I was good with it. I thought it was ready to go until Paul Owen came in my office. And Paul and I talk about Scripture a good bit, and Paul... Uh, Paul came in, and he often does this, and, and, and he said, what are you going to preach on Sunday? And I said, I'm going to talk about telling the truth. I'm talking about lying in contrast, contrast to telling the truth. And uh, he said, how are you going to do it? Well, I, I said, I'm going to line up these passages, and here are instances in the Scripture where people told lies, and here's what happened. And I really want to talk about the consequence of each one, what happened as a result of their lies. And he said, oh, that's great. He said, that's great. He said, have you thought about 1 Samuel 21? What about David? And what was that priest's name? And then he, he finally hit it, Ahimelech. I said, I haven't. And so I, uh, I remembered it, and I, I went back, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and it changed the sermon. All right. Well, what, it, what I found was that everything just about that I prepared to talk about this morning fits so beautifully from that chapter. That chapter, where we're going to go in just a minute, 
after I set the table for you, we're going to go over to 1 Samuel 21, 22, and we're going to talk about what I'm describing as the anatomy of a lie. You have the qualities of a lie laid out by David and a lie that he told to a priest called Elimelech. And so we'll be there in just a few minutes. But I want to preface for it. I want to, maybe half the sermon is going to be getting us to the point where we're ready for that discussion. Now, I read an article recently from a lady named Pavlovic, and she, she studies chronic liars. And a chronic liar or an habitual liar is one who just, I don't know, have you ever known anybody who just lied all the time? That was just part of their makeup. You just knew that's, that's how they were. Well, I, I've been around very few of those. I think as a default, most people, human beings, try to tell the truth by virtue of the fact that we use a language. And language is, consists, it consists of words, and words mean something. And in just general conversation, we converse based on truth. I assume that you're using these words in the typical definition of the words. And so without that fundamental kind of truth, the default truth, we couldn't function. Now remember... Bible talks about habitual lying in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, and it, it speaks of the, of the Cretans, and the Bible says that they're liars. They're, as your own poets have said, and they're, they're always liars, and they're evil beasts, and they're slow bellies, and there's a description, they're always liars. How do you like that? Anyway, in this discussion, I thought it was very interesting. She studies chronic liars, habitual liars. And, and she answers this question from her studies. Why do people do it? That's very interesting to me. And here are four of them. She gave more, but I pulled out four. And the first one is that with a chronic liar, truth feels like giving up some control. And so in my life, because I perceive myself in sort of a narcissistic way, in the center of my universe, and I need to control the, the, the atmosphere around me and control my narrative that I'm trying to portray... That I, that I lie, and I lie very often because sometimes I feel like truth is getting me out of those boundaries. And I want to control. I want to be able to control my own narrative, and I've got it in my mind, and so I do that because I'm afraid of losing control. Two, she said sometimes, believe it or not, it's because this person doesn't want to disappoint you. I, I, uh, I want so much to be accepted by you and everybody around me that I, truth sometimes interferes with that. And if you knew the truth, you wouldn't think as much of me. And so I just lie. And I do that a lot. Three, lies have a way of snowballing. And, and you know this is true. You have to have supportive lies to under, undergird the ones you told before. So with, with snowballing, what happens is you just keep on lying. And the, the, the funny thing about a chronic liar is that people around them start recognizing this that you just can't trust him. And eventually a chronic liar gets to the point where he tells lies that just make people roll their eyes because it's just so obviously not true. And you get to the point as, as a chronic liar where you will say things about the color of the sky and anybody can tell that it's a lie. She said number four, it may not be a lie to them. Now, I don't want to step over into the silly here, but I don't think this is silly at all. She said what happens is, according to her study about chronological or, or chronic liars, is that, is that they have their own reality and that 
they're so determined that their reality as they want it to be is consistent, is carried out, that, that they will lie and believe at some point that I mean that they're telling the truth. They will hold on to that, that um, perception. Perception can become reality with a person even though it's just as false as it can be. The Bible in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 says that a person can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I'm going to shift gears now. Let's talk about God. So what does God think about lying? And the answer is, wow, you, you cannot imagine a sin about which God is more serious than he is about lying. It is because surely his nature is so based on truth and you're thankful for that. Without that, none of us would hope we have any hope of heaven. We have to have truth. We have to be able to depend on his word. But I'm telling you, he doesn't doesn't tolerate lying in people. Now, he's merciful. I know that because Peter lied there at the trial of my Lord and and that Jesus set him up to be one of the apostles. I mean, he he continued on. It was Peter in Acts chapter 2 who helped to birth the church. I know that. I know that my God is merciful. But I'm telling you right now that God's real serious about lying. So let's go to Proverbs chapter 6. You remember this list. There are six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to him. It's an interesting list. I mean, how does something make this list? How does something get to be so egregious, so wrong that it makes this list? It's very much like, in my mind, the Ten Commandments. And how, how did some, all of these things are so terribly important. Some because the principle is broadly applicable, but you have Ten Commandments. Something is so serious that it makes the list. How did it make the list? But that's not all about Proverbs chapter 6 in reference to lying because you got it not just once but twice. In a list of seven things, lying is mentioned And what the Bible says here is that lying is an abomination to the Lord. Now, you understand what abomination means. It means it makes him just sick. He loathes this. Think Think of some other things that are abomination. Look at the next slide. 1715 of Proverbs. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just. My, my, liberalism, we got lots of that today. That's a pretty good description of a very essential characteristic of liberalism in religion. Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. A Proverb 28, 9 might be more familiar to you. He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be. Here's the word again. There's some things that God finds, finds simply deplorable, simply unbearable. What about Deuteronomy 22, 5? I'll throw this in. There's many more than this, but just so you get it. I don't want a man to dress like a woman and a woman to dress like a man, God says, because that's an abomination to me. Hold that and appreciate that back in Proverbs 6, the Bible says that lying is an abomination to the Lord. He hates it. Revelation 21 and verse 8 says that it'll keep you out of heaven. You can't go to heaven like that and be a liar. You can't. And in John 8 and verse 44, the Lord Jesus talked about some of the people, the Jews of his day, and he said, what will happen is when you turn into a liar, when that's what you are, when you are a liar, it calls into question who your father is because God is not the originator of lies. And if that's who you become, then your father is somebody besides Jehovah God. All right, now we're ready 
or 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. You're, you're familiar with what happens with David. He kills Goliath. He is selected by Samuel, by God through Samuel. He's going to be the next king. Uh, we come on and now David is, is gaining popularity as a great soldier under King Saul. Uh, David is so, so tied together with his friend Jonathan, who is the son of Saul. But Saul's going crazy. And it becomes more and more increasingly apparent to David, or to Saul rather, that David's going to be the next king. Now, David's not doing anything to harm Saul. David's just happy with Saul continuing on as king, and he's not going to do anything against him. But Saul doesn't believe that. And so Saul becomes a little crazy, and he is full of paranoia. And that's, that's something that you got to get about these chapters. David's going to tell a lie. Jonathan says, okay, now look, David, I didn't think it was true. I didn't think my daddy was trying to kill you, but he is. He's lost his mind, and he's going to kill you. You've got to run. And so David and Jonathan part. David takes off. And that brings us to chapter 21. The first place that David goes is to the tabernacle. And Ahimelech is there, and he's the priest there. And David encounters him, and that starts this discussion. Now, as we walk through this, I want to show you the anatomy of a lie. It's not just that he lies. It's, it's the anatomy. You have, you have step by step what is characteristic of a lie. Now, the reason, the motivation for teaching this is that everybody in this room has to make a resolve about their own personal ethics. And it's got to exclude all lying. I cannot lie. Now, the funny thing about this temptation, this is true about a number of them, and you can think about different temptations, is that with lying, you, you can't just say, I'll cross the bridge when I get to it. That's no good because an essential element of the temptation to lie is the abruptness of it. The temptation smacks you, you don't see it coming, and suddenly you're under intense pressure. We'll see some more of that in just a couple of minutes. What we've got to do in this sermon is, for everybody in this room, this is applicable to me, too, of course, all of us have to build into our ethics a, a concrete resolve that prepares us for whenever we face whatever temptation about lying. So strong that immediately I'll recognize, I can't do that. And when the temptation faces me, it comes to me, I can't do that. No matter what, I can't do that because God abhors it. All right, so let's begin now in chapter 21 and verse 1. Now, David came to Nob. Nob's about 12 miles out of Jerusalem. When you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be surprised that, that so much of the Bible is in a very narrow circle, right, in this amazing place. And, and so we're just 12 miles out of Jerusalem in Nob. To Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? Now, what's up with that? David is the, the son-in-law of the king. And David, the son-in-law of the king, doesn't travel without an entourage. I mean, it's very much like, I mean, if Kate Middleton came in here this morning to our worship, which, by the way, would be a fine thing. But if she came in by herself and she just sat down, I, I have an idea that after we greeted her, we would ask her why she was alone. Doesn't seem normal. That's how it was with David. Why are, you, why are you here alone? Here's number one. We're talking about the anatomy of a lie. And the first one is the tempting pressure. 
tempting pressure. People speculate in commentaries about why David's going to lie here. And, and some say, well, because he loved the priest and he didn't want to get him involved in this in potential trouble. That may be true. I rather doubt that. I would like to think that. But I, I think it's more probable that what happens here is that David is running as hard as he can to get away from Saul. And, and he's alone and he's afraid and he doesn't want anybody to know about this conflict. They don't have the communication abilities that we have. And so he figures, I guess, that, that the longer he can keep it a secret, the farther he can get away before Saul is in hot pursuit. That's what it appears to me. And so here's the pressure. Why are you alone, David? Now, pause there a minute and consider the pressure that, that accompanies the temptation to lie. Genesis chapter 4. Cain lied to God. Where's your brother? I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, see, Cain had killed his brother. It was a lie, but he didn't want God to know that. He didn't want to face the music. What about Genesis chapter 27? And Jacob lied to his daddy, Isaac, who was old and dying and blind. And Jacob said, I'm Esau. I want the birthright. Give me the birthright. And that's what happened based on a lie. I want what I want, and I want it now, and I'm willing to lie to get it. The temptation was pressureful. It was that you are about to, your dad's about to die. He's going to give the birthright to Esau, where, by the way, it belonged, and you will never have it. And so he lied. Genesis 39, what about Potiphar's wife? Potiphar's wife was, of course, scared that she was going to be indicted in pursuing a slave in a way that would be inappropriate and she would face all that shame. What do you do about that? And that pressure motivated her to lie. And so what she did was to say, he tried to force himself on me. When you get to Acts, the fifth chapter, sometimes uh, the pressure to lie is that I, I, I want you to think well of me, even though it is not true. And so I will twist the facts. And Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much they got for the property, Right? Is it ever right to lie? Is there ever a justification for it? And I thought a lot about this, and I understand that there are some, some, you can build scenarios that are very hard about lying, and the answer is the Bible just doesn't leave room for that. It doesn't leave room for it. Ephesians 4 and 25 says, putting away lying. Want to be a Christian? Put away lying. Or what about 1 John 2 and 21? And it's talking about people who are against Christ, antichrist. And it says, no lie is of the truth. Just that, let that soak in. What are you saying? What are you saying? Lying and telling the truth are two very different things. All right. So the first part of the anatomy is the pressure. The pressure that happens. And typically, again, it happens about a lie when you don't see it coming. And suddenly it smacks you in the face. And, and if you're not ready, you're going to do the wrong thing. Now, here's the second one. The second part, component of the anatomy, is the lie itself. Now, look at verse 2. We're in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, verse 2. So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, ready for this? It's going to shock you. The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. See, he's covering the different things. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, David said, he told a lie. Now, therefore, 
what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. I need food. The priest answered David and said, there's no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And so the second thing is the lie itself. And David constructs this fanciful, false statement to say, I, 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 I don't have anybody with me because the king has sent me on a mission and he told me that I had to go quickly and I have to be alone right now. And so it's, it's all about the king. I'm, doing, I'm following the king's orders. All right, number three, anatomy of a lie. The third part is the supportive lie. Now, almost every time a person tells a lie, It's going to be like David here, and you're going to see number three, the anatomy of a lie, almost always. You take a man committing adultery, and I'm telling you, don't ever commit adultery without a whole lot of lying going on, and every lie has to have another one that supports it, right? And this is true about David in this case. So let's go to verse five and six. So David answered the priest and said to him, truly, women have been kept from us. There is no us. He manufactured that. Women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect, in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. It's all right for us to eat this bread. We'll take this bread. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now, if you drop down to Verse 8, he does it again. I just want to put this in. And David said to Ahimelech, Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or sword? For I, I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me. Got to do another lie here. Got to have another one. Here you go. Because the king's business required haste. That's a lie. But that never happened. The truth is that Saul wants to kill David and he's pursuing David and David is running. And so he just, he's just lied about it. So the, the third component of the anatomy of a lie is the support. You have to build a support system around a lie to keep it sustained or it, it typically will fall. It often will just simply fall. By the way, that's not true about the truth. Truth's not like that. You just tell the truth and it's always going to be the truth. And you don't have to, to cover or massage it or, or move it around. It's just the truth. And, and even if people don't believe you, you know, you can still sleep at night because it doesn't really matter whether or not they believe it. You know it's the truth. The truth's the truth, right? Not so about a lie. Now, here's the fourth one, the unseen weakness. Now, just let this soak in and see if you don't believe it's the truth. Now, it's the truth, I can tell you for a fact about David here, but I want to say it's typical of the anatomy of a lie, which is that there will always be a weakness somewhere in that lie that makes it susceptible to discovery. Now, if you have a paper Bible, it's very important, I think, that you do something in the margin or something underlining with verse 7. Verse 7 doesn't seem to fit. Why do we need this piece of information? And you're going to find out, but, but here's the weakness, the unseen, unexpected weakness in reference to the lie. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. What we assume is that he'd made some sort of a vow to God, and it involved spending some time at the tabernacle. So it's coincidental. 
It's just, he just happens to be there. Doeg, the, and, and every time I read that, I want to take out the E because it sounds, it just looks like dog. Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. All right, now that's going to be important, so somehow set that verse aside. David said to Ahimelech, is there not on here a hand a spear or a sword? I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there's no other except that one here. And David said, ah, there's none like it. Give it to me. All right. Now number Five, the fifth, and this takes us to the next chapter, the fifth component of the anatomy of a lie, and we start down in verse six. Now, I probably ought to give you just a moment of this. David heads out from there and goes to Gath, and it shows us something about the desperate condition of his mind. He's desperate. He believes Saul has a great shot at killing him, and so he goes to, why would, why do you, why would David go to Gath? What is Gath? What, puts, what comes in your mind when I say Gath? And the answer is, it's where Goliath is from. The Philistine Goliath is of Gath. And, and here's David, and he wants to not be recognized. He just wants to go to a place where Saul is probably not going to come, and he wouldn't come to Gath. But, but David goes in there, and there's an assembly, and the king is there, and somebody says, the king says, hey, wait a minute. Aren't you the one about whom they say David has slain his ten thousands and Saul his thousands? Aren't you the big Israel? And, and I, you know, it might be really hard for David to say, no, no, it's not me because he's wearing the giant's sword on his side. He's got Goliath's sword on his side. Well, yeah, I expect, yeah, I expect that's who that is. That's David right there. And David feigns insanity. The Hebrew word literally means epileptic, that he... He feigns a seizure of some kind, and the king says, get him out of my sight. I'm, I'm just bringing that up because it illustrates how panicked David is. So here's the fifth component now of the anatomy of a lie. It is this, the unintended results of the lie, the unintended results. So I'm starting in 22 now in verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered... Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing around about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now you Benjamites, talk about crazy, this man is. Will the son of Jesse, that's David, give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Look how I've helped you. Look how I've benefited you. All of you have conspired against me. See, he's going, he's going paranoid in his mind. All of you have conspired against me, and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. How come you didn't tell me this? There's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. My son is against me, and my son is the one that elevated and protected David. All right, now hold on to your seats. Then answered Doeg. Doeg has gotten back home again. The Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, 
the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now you know how come in chapter 21 you have Doeg, right? He's there because this is critical. There's always going to be this element of, of risk. There's always going to be some detail that the person who tells the lie doesn't see at the moment. So the king sent and called Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, there are 85 priests, y'all, who were in Nob, and they came to the king. This, I'm going to read this, and it's just going to break your heart. It's just so sad, but as I read it, I want you to think about the consequence, the unintended, unexpected consequence of lies. And sometimes it is just catastrophic, and you didn't mean for this to happen. You didn't see this coming. But you're culpable, but you're part of this. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. See, that's a clean conscience, clean conscience. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you gave him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Okay, that's, in his mind, that's reality. It's all false. But in his mind, that's, that's reality. It's conspiracy. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant, nor to any in the house of my father. For your servant, I knew nothing of all this, little or much. That's the truth. It's the truth because David didn't tell him. It's the truth because David lied to him. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord. I don't know how he got those words out of his mouth. Because their, hands, their hand also was with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift up their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doag, you turn and kill the priests. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on, on that day 85 men who wore a linen, a linen ephod. And then he went and killed all the ones in Nob too. He killed all their families of the 85 priests. Killed them all. Because he believed that this priest who in Ahimelech, who encountered David, he believed Ahimelech had supported a conspiracy against him through David. And Ahimelech had no idea. He knew nothing of it. All he knew was that David came and said that Saul had sent him, and he did all he could to help who he believed was a servant of Saul. Now here's the sixth and final component of the anatomy of a lie. is the guilt, the haunting guilt after the lie, and after the lie is revealed. Abiathar 21 told David he had escaped, that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said, and you'll want to, you'll want to note something about 22 here, underline it or circle it or something. David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I heard that voice in the back of my mind that, that that could happen. I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. 
Now, in that margin, I want you to also write Psalm 52. So far as we know, Psalm 52 was written by David at this time when he recognized what had happened to all these priests and how his, David's lie was connected to it. You'll probably want to take up Psalm 52 and read it later. And there's this guilt, this awful haunting guilt that David now feels because while you could argue that Saul is the one who committed the murders, while you could argue all those sorts of things, you still come back to this fact. Old David was culpable. David's lie was an integral part to what ultimately happened to this good priest and all of these other priests in Nob. Now, I want to put up this one more slide just to review the anatomy of a lie. Now, this is going to be true in your life. This will be true in my life. So let's all bear it in mind today and make a resolve in our ethics. And I know that we're Christians, and I know that we already understand this. It's funny about lying. It's one of those sins that even people who are not Christians understand Christians don't do. I got that. But don't we all need some resolve to make sure that we stay away from lying? The tempting pressure to lie, the lie itself, then the supportive lie, the unseen weakness in the lie, the unintended result of the lie, and then the lingering guilt that I must live with after the lie when things do not turn out well. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Jews of his day, and he, and he said something I mentioned a while ago. They were liars. And he said, you're of your father the devil. When he speaks a lie, he speaks his own. He's the father of lies. And then he says, Jesus said, but I tell you the truth. Because I tell you the truth, you don't believe in me. Ultimately, I've got to make a decision in my life. And the decision must be that I want to be God's servant. I want to follow Jesus Christ. And one ingredient of that is that I love truth. I must always love truth. And as I go through my days, I have this ethic, this concrete, ironclad ethic. I just won't lie. I just won't lie. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.